Well, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are the first God-man. Thank you. You are the God-man who lived a life absolutely one with the Father, that your human living lived out the Father, that your human living caused God to be expressed in man. And we praise you, Lord, that today we are your continuation. We are your reproduction, your increase. And we ask you, speak to us. Show us how, how you are carrying out the reproduction of yourself, the first God-man. In us, the many God-men. Praise you. You are the firstborn in your humanity. And we are your many brothers to be conformed to you and to be the same as you, to have your image. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you in this meeting. Show us who you are. Show us what you are doing in each of us, in our Christian life and in our church life. So, Lord, your living would be reproduced in us, in our daily living, and in us, in our church life together. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we come to message three, and I'd like to read the title to you and then bring us to some verses, three verses in the Gospel of Luke as the basis for this title and even for this outline. The title is the Christian life and church life being the reproduction of Christ's God-man living. So our personal Christian life, but also our corporate church life, in reality, must be a reproduction of Christ's God-man living. So the three verses like us to read together, or I'll read them to you from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus. This is referring to a man, Jesus, with humanity. But then in verse 32, still referring to this man, Jesus, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father. So he was not just a man born of Mary, but he was also God. He was the son of the most high. So this one, he had both divinity and humanity. That's why he is a God-man, the first God-man. And as we read the Gospel of Luke 
as we read about his living, we are seeing not just the living of a man. Even we refer to the gospel of Luke as the gospel that shows us the Lord as a man, a man savior. Yes, he is a man, a genuine man, but he's not just a man. He's also at the same time, the son of the most high, the son of the supreme. In other words, he is one with not only humanity, but also divinity. Then we go to chapter six in the gospel of Luke. Verse 35, here the Lord is speaking to his disciples, and he tells them, but love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. And I'd like to include here verse 36, because it will relate to something in the conclusion to this message. Be full of compassion, even as your father also is full of compassion. So in verse 35, The Lord describes that the living of his disciples will be a living as sons of the Most High. So here we see a seed sowing that the Lord in Luke 1, the first God-man, the first one who is the Son of the Most High, he is going to be reproduced in his disciples, and their living will not be just the living of men, of disciples, of believers, but their living will be his living because they will be sons of the Most High. They will be a reproduction of the one who is the son of the Most High. So now let's come to the outline. The outline will be a help to us to see how there could be such a reproduction in us, the Lord's believers, a reproduction of him, the first God-man. So Roman 1, the man saviors God-man living constituted a prototype. This prototype is for the reproduction, the mass reproduction of the God-man in the believers. So we have those references there in Luke. We also have the additional reference from Romans 8.29, where God is, in verse 28, using all things to conform us, the believers, to the image of the firstborn son. 
So God is doing something in the believers, a work to conform them to the image of Christ, the firstborn son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, or he might be the first God-man among many God-men. And his living on the earth during his earthly ministry, actually beginning from the time of his birth, was the living of a God-man. And in Luke, in this gospel, we see the details of this living of a man who is a God-man. And there's really no human language that's adequate to describe the living of the God-man revealed in the Gospel of Luke. His living was not merely ethical, moral, or spiritual, but the kind of life that he lived was based on his being both divine and human, being a God-man. And his living was actually the living out of the divine attributes, what God is through his human virtues. His living was a living by the Father, by the Father living in him, so that the result is that God was being expressed in a man. So the Gospel of Luke shows us a man living a human life with the divine life as the content. The Lord, he lived the life of a genuine man, a genuine human life. But the way he lived that life was by God as the content. As a genuine man, he had a mind, he had an emotion, he had a will. Yet the Lord's mind, emotion, and will were organs to contain the thought, the feeling, the will of God. The thought, the feeling, the will of the Father. That's why in John, the Gospel of John, the Lord told us that he did not speak his own words, but he spoke the Father's words. He did not do his own will, but he took the Father's will as his will. He did not judge according to his own judgment, but he judged according to the Father. Even the works that he did were not according to his own works, but it was the Father working within him. So if we are going to be a reproduction of this first God-man, of Christ, we have to realize that this reproduction is not merely by an outward change in our behavior. Don't read the Gospel of Luke to see this outward living of a man and think that you 
can study this and practice to live that kind of life. But rather, when we read the Gospel of Luke, when we see that living of Christ, we have to have the seeing. This is a living of a God-man. God is the content of this man. So in Psalm chapter 16, verse 7, there's a prophecy concerning Christ's human living. And it says, I will bless Jehovah who counsels me. Indeed, in the night, my inward parts instruct me. I'd like to read footnote 7-1 to you. Christ, the humble servant of Jehovah, was counseled by God, and his inward parts instructed him in the nights. So are there two teachers here? Jehovah outwardly counseling him and then his own inward parts instructing him? No. When we read this note, it helps us to see when God counseled Christ as a man, Christ's inward parts instructed him through his contact with God. The inward parts of Christ were one with God. This is the proper experience of a God-man. So we, we need to see this before we get into this outline. That if we are to be a reproduction of Christ, this reproduction takes place in our inner being. It takes place in our inward parts. Our inward parts will be at issue here. What will be the content of our inward parts? Will it still be just us with our natural life? Or will it be Christ? You know, for us right now, our inward parts, especially our mind, emotion, will, are governed by us, are governed by our moods, our opinions, our thinking, our views, our feelings. But with the Lord, the prototype, this man, this God-man, Jehovah counseled him by being the content of his inward parts. He allowed God's thought to be the content of his mind. He allowed God's feeling to be the content of his emotion. And he allowed God's will to be the content of his will. That's the source of his living. That's why he lived out a God-man life, not just merely a human living but a living with God being expressed. 
So when we, again, read the gospel of Luke, brothers and sisters, when we're reading about this wonderful prototype, we have to go beyond just the mere behavior, just the mere outward living we see of this man. Even though it is splendid, it is high, we need to go beyond to see that he is a God-man in his inner parts, his inward parts. And that the way we are reproduced, well, I'm sorry, not we who are reproduced, the way we become a reproduction of Christ, the way we cooperate to have Christ reproduced in us, in our living, is by allowing this one to become the content of our inward parts. We may find that we still limit him regarding what he can touch, what he can fill of our inward parts. So if we're clear about this, we need Roman numeral two. Because we, we now must consider how, how can Christ, the first God-man, become my inward content? My natural mind and understanding can understand that outwardly I can look at his living and appreciate it, study it, and then I try to imitate it. I understand that according to my natural thinking. But to see that this Christ needs to become my content, needs to become my inward parts, how how could this be? Well, let's read Roman numeral two. Christ, the unique prototype, has become the all-inclusive life-giving spirit. As an extract of himself. So Christ, we know, died on the cross. He accomplished redemption there. We also know through that death, he released the life that was within him. And in resurrection, this God-man became the life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45b clearly says the last Adam. That's referring to Christ, the God-man. The last Adam became, referring to in resurrection, became a life-giving spirit. So today, Christ is the spirit. Even we can call him the pneumatic Christ. And in Philippians 1.19, Paul, being in an outwardly difficult situation, environment, he was in prison. He said that this would turn out to salvation to him, not only because of the prayers of the saints, 
But because right there, he had the bountiful supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. He had this one, Jesus Christ, the first God-man, as the spirit in him in that situation. So that in verse 20, he could magnify Christ. And in verse 21, he could live Christ. Well, we might be perhaps a little bit stuck on the word extract, (laughs) that in resurrection, Christ became the life-giving spirit. And this life-giving spirit is an extract of Christ himself. Well, this word is here to help us to see what we have received into us. So if we consider just in the physical realm, an extract. An extract is a liquid that's extracted from an organic matter, or we could say a plant, and it contains the the essence of that plant, but in a concentrated form. So perhaps earlier today, at your breakfast, you enjoyed a glass of juice, orange juice. Orange juice is an extract from an orange. And when an orange gets pressed, the extract comes out. But in that extract, in that juice, is the essence of the orange. That's why it's not just juice, it's orange juice. And when you drink that juice, you drink in, receive in the essence of the orange. But actually with an extract, it's not only the essence. It also includes the element. It also includes the nature. It also includes the characteristics, and the substance of whatever it was extracted from. So today, we're told we should eat at least two and a half cups of vegetables and two cups of fruit, at least. Well, sometimes I'm very happy when I can, at the supermarket, see a juice that includes both vegetable and fruit juices. But actually, that bottle of juice is an extract. And many times on the label, they will illustrate, included in this bottle, are these vegetables and these fruits. This juice is an extract of cucumber, of kale, of spinach, of celery, of oranges and apples. And when you drink that juice, in that juice is the essence, the element, the substance. We know the minerals, the vitamins of those 
vegetables, of those fruits. And it's there in that extract, that juice, in a concentrated form. Oh, and it's so easy to take in, so easy to receive. Well, we need to see that in resurrection, this first God-man, you know, he even considered that his death was a baptism, which he was to be baptized in. And he says, I am pressed, pressed until it is fulfilled. This is in Luke twelve fifty. So that process of death was like a great pressing of Christ. And what came out of this Christ when he was pressed? The spirit in resurrection. But that spirit is not apart from Christ, is not separate from Christ. This spirit is the all-inclusive Christ. In this spirit is the essence, the element, the nature, the substance, and the characteristics of Christ, the God-man. Included in this spirit is his God-man living. Included in this spirit is his divinely uplifted human virtues. And it's all in a form that is easy for us to receive. To receive him as the spirit, as an extract. So now let's come to the outline, Roman numeral 2a, the all-inclusive life-giving spirit is actually an extract of the all-inclusive Christ. Thus, the all-inclusive life-giving spirit includes all that Christ is, all that he has passed through, and all that he accomplished, attained, and obtained. It's all there, brothers and sisters, in the Spirit. All that we read about in the Gospel of Luke is in the Spirit, is in that extract. And now this Spirit is in us. So be Christ becoming the life-giving spirit is related to the reproduction of the God-man. The God-man is reproduced by the all-inclusive spirit. So this all-inclusive spirit is the all-inclusive Christ coming to us as the pneumatic one, the pneumatic Christ, to enter into us so that he could be our content. So we and Christ could have one life and one living. And it's this spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which Paul calls the Lord, the spirit, the Lord spirit. It's this spirit that is transforming us, changing our inward constitution 
to constitute our inward parts with Christ. It's this spirit that's transforming us into the same image as this resurrected, glorified God-man. And it's going on in us step by step from glory to glory. So now let's look at these steps. And really, we could consider two, two main steps that are taken for the reproduction of Christ as the God-man in us. So Roman numeral three, the reproduction of the God-man requires that we are reborn of the pneumatic Christ. This is Christ as the all-inclusive spirit, that we are reborn of the pneumatic Christ in our spirit and that we be transformed by the pneumatic Christ in our soul. A, the first step in the reproduction of the God-man is that we must be reborn of the pneumatic Christ in our spirit with his divine life and nature. So we have the reference, John 3, 6b, the latter part of that verse. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Many of us are very familiar with John chapter 3. Many of us know this chapter speaks of regeneration. But how many of us realize what that spirit is that we are born of? The spirit by which we are regenerated, is the spirit of the glorified God-man. So one, the regenerating spirit is the all-inclusive life-giving spirit. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ. The extract of the all-inclusive crucified and resurrected Christ. Little a, the essence, elements, nature, and substance of Christ are all in the all-inclusive spirit. It is by this spirit that Christ, the God-man, is reproduced. So now our view of regeneration is not just we were regenerated in our spirit. We received the life of God in our spirit, which is what happened at the time of regeneration. But we also must see that our regeneration was the advancement of the reproduction of the God-man. It was the first step that we needed to experience to have Christ living as a God-man reproduced in us. And then we have included here from 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, where John speaks of the anointing that we have received. And this anointing is the inward 
the inward moving and working of the indwelling compound spirit, who is typified by the compound ointment in Exodus 30. So in Exodus 30, there was a holy anointing oil that was also called a compound ointment, where there was one hen of olive oil compounded into that uh, oil were four spices. And these spices represent Christ's humanity with its human living, his death, and his resurrection. So today in the spirit, in the spirit of God, which is the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of Jesus, which is the spirit of Jesus Christ, there's not only divinity, but there's the humanity of Jesus and the human living of Jesus, along with his death and his resurrection and their effectiveness. All these things are in the spirit. And this spirit is in us because we received this spirit at the time of our regeneration. Then in 1 John 2.27, this anointing is teaching us many things, mainly to teach us how to abide in the triune God. But in the footnote, it mentions that this anointing of this all-inclusive, compound, life-giving spirit in us. It is like painting an object, where when you paint an object, it's not just that the object will now have the color of the paint, but also there, when the object is being painted again and again with one layer after another layer of the paint, the paint is being worked into that object. The element of the paint is getting into the object that's been painted. So this spirit that's in us as the extract of this God-man is anointing us, anointing our inward parts. And as this spirit anoints our inward parts, the spirit is adding. The spirit is transfusing and infusing Christ into our inward parts. So praise the Lord for our regeneration, that in that step, Christ the God-man as this extract, as the spirit came into our spirit. Because brothers and sisters, we are not going to live out the life of that God-man in the gospel of Luke by us trying to change our outward behavior. It's impossible. It can only be done by that extract, by the spirit which, hallelujah, we have received at the time of our regeneration. So we should see our regeneration is the beginning in us of the reproduction of Christ, that first God-man. And in this spirit is the element of his humanity and human living. In that spirit is the highest standard of morality. Okay, back to the outline. One little b. This spirit includes the element of the Lord's life of expressing God 
The element of the restored, recovered, strengthened, empowered, and uplifted human virtues. And the element of the man's saviors enriched and uplifted human virtues. There in Luke 7, we have two, two accounts there. In fact, these accounts here in Luke 7 are not recorded in the other Gospels. In Luke 7, 11 to 17, the Lord saw that there was a widow, a widow, lost her husband. And there was a funeral procession for her only son. And this God-man, when he saw her, it says he was moved with compassion. So what was expressed there was the compassion of God through Jesus' human virtues. We not only see compassion expressed there, we see sympathy, we see mercy expressed there. The Lord didn't take that as an opportunity. Oh, let me exhibit my great power. But rather, what's mentioned first was compassion. He was moved with compassion. We see an expression of someone full of God who is compassion. Then the other account is in the house of Simon, where this sinful woman came up to the Lord and began to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her her, her hair. And the Pharisees in the house, they said, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him because she is a sinner. See there, human virtues, full of judging and condemning, because they knew some things about this woman. I think they're very good representatives of us. We just know a few things about someone, and we're full of judging, condemning of them. But the Lord, being a God-man, surely he knew. He knew this woman. He knew everything about her. But what did he do? He forgave her. He forgave her. He was full of forgiveness. Being expressed there, compassion, forgiveness through his human virtues. Okay, two. All the elements in the all-inclusive spirit have been born into us through the spirit. So this is the first step. But now we need B. We need the second main step, which says for the reproduction of the God-man, we need to be transformed by the pneumatic Christ, who's the extract, the spirit in our soul with his divine attributes to uplift, strengthen, enrich, and fill our human virtues for his expression in our humanity. So these verbs uplift. Why? Because our humanity is low. Our fallen humanity is low. Why strengthen? Because our humanity with its virtues, they're weak, right? We have human virtues, but they're weak. They're poor. That's why they need to be enriched. Uh, They're just 
empty. They need God as the content. They need to be filled. So we have human virtues, but we have to admit our human virtues are low, are weak, are poor, and even somewhat empty. And they need to be filled, to be filled with Christ. And Christ is the spirit who doesn't want to just be in our spirit, but he wants to spread into our soul into our inward parts to become the content of our inward being. So we need an eye of faith, brothers and sisters, to realize what we have in our spirit. We have that triune God man with his uplifted humanity in our spirit, his enriched humanity with the highest standard of morality is in our spirit, but now we need to allow the spirit anointing us, moving in us, working in us to spread into our soul, into our mind, into our emotion, into our will, to fill our mind with the mind of Christ, to fill our emotion with the inward feeling of Christ, and to fill our will with his will. So now, if we see this, we would have the realization, the more we are transformed by the Spirit, the more the divine attributes will uplift, strengthen, enrich, and fill our human virtues. So, a metabolic change, an inward change in life. Such a metabolic change requires the working within us of the element of the divine life. This produces a change not only in appearance, and behavior, but also a change in life, nature, and intrinsic essence. This is what must take place in us for the reproduction of Christ, that first God-man, in our Christian living and in our church life. So now we come to Roman numeral four, and we'll see an example of this in Paul expressed in the book of Philippians, Roman number four, those who are the reproduction of the God-man should live Christ as the God-man. For me to live as Christ. This is Philippians 1.21. Hey, the Christ who lives in us is still the one. He's still a God-man. He's still the one who possesses the human virtues, strengthened and enriched by the divine attributes. Little one, the Christ who is being dispensed into us is a composition of the divine nature, 
with its divine attributes and the human nature with its human virtues. So Paul labored and struggled till Christ was formed in the believers. This Christ, Paul was laboring and struggling to be formed in the believers, is the God-man, the one who still has the divine nature and the human nature mingled together as one, the one who still has the divinely uplifted human virtues. It's this one Paul was laboring to have formed in the saints. Two, Christ is now seeking to live in the believers the kind of life that he lived on earth. Within us, he is still living a life that is a composition of the divine attributes and the human virtues. So when we read John 14, 19b, the Lord speaking of in resurrection, he said, because I live, you also shall live. The Lord here is the one who lives, who lives in us. He is the one who still has the divine attributes and the human virtues. And he's living in us to work these into us. So in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, But I myself, Paul, entreat you through the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This indicates that Paul, in his being one with Christ, he lived by Christ, and he behaved by Christ's virtues, by Christ's virtue of meekness and gentleness. So the Christ within him was the one is the one who has both the divine attributes and the human virtues. Then 2 Corinthians 11.10, the truthfulness of Christ is in me the truthfulness of Christ. So since Paul lived by Christ, whatever Christ is became his virtue and his behavior. So B says in Luke, we see how Christ was incarnated and lived the life of a God-man in Philippians. We see how Christ is lived out from us in order to have many duplicates of himself. Every genuine spiritual experience is just our entering into Christ's history so that it would be repeated in us as our experience. Our living needs to become just a Duplication of the Lord himself. Okay, one says Paul and Christ had one life and one living. Living together as one person. So Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. Then from the description in two chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, we can see that the Christ in Philippians 1.21, that Paul lived, is the God-man in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Hence, to live Christ is to live the God-man. Three, we live Christ as the God-man by the bountiful supply of the Spirit 
of Jesus Christ, the spirit of that God-man. So we've got to be clear, we we live Christ, but who's Christ? He's a God-man. And as the spirit, this God-man is in us today to supply us with himself so that we would live by him as our inward content so that he could be lived out of us, expressed from us. So four, four is very practical. In order to live Christ as the God-man, we need to take his mind. To have his mind requires us to be one with Christ in his inward parts. So 2.5 in Philippians says, let this mind be in you. Let the mind that is in Christ, let Christ's mind be in you. See, this is something inward, something that touches our inward being, our inward parts. Then in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul longed after the believers in Philippi according to the inward parts of Christ, the inward, most tender parts of Christ. In other words, Christ's inward, tender feeling towards the believers had been worked into Paul's feeling that he longed after them according to the inward parts of Christ. So to live Christ, experience Christ, We need to be one with him to the extent that his inward tender feeling and his thinking is in our inward parts, in our mind and in our emotions. So this reproduction of the first God-man, brothers and sisters, is going to firstly affect our mind, our thinking, the way we think. Because when Paul describes this God-man, the first thing he speaks about this God-man is the kind of mind that he has. He is not high-minded, but rather he's willing to empty himself, to lower himself, to take the form of a man, and even the form of a slave. And in our church life, the most damaging thing, well, I don't necessarily need to say the most damaging thing, but I should say high-mindedness damages the church life. Our high-mindedness, thinking of ourself, something more than we should think. Thinking of ourselves as higher than others. Or thinking that we are okay to condemn and judge others. This shows there's a lack of the reproduction of Christ in our inward being. Because this one, 
was not high-minded, but rather he was willing to empty himself, lower himself, and even come to serve man as a slave. Oh, in the church life, how we need Christ's mind, especially when we consider ourselves and when we consider one another. And then we also need Christ's inward tender feeling towards one another. Okay, let me continue. Five, as we live Christ as the God-man, we will shine as luminaries in the world, holding forth the word of life. You know, a luminary has no source of light in itself. It just reflects the light of, of another source, like the moon is a luminary. It just reflects the light of the sun. Our living should just be our reflecting as a duplication of Christ's life in us. Holding forth the word of life. That, that doesn't mean just holding forth the letters of what's taught in the Bible, but rather seeing that all scripture is God breathed that through the word and through our seeing the pattern, the prototype of that first God man, we're brought to him as the spirit to receive him as the spirit into us, to allow him to reproduce himself in our inward parts so that in our living, especially our living out the human life, joined with him, one with him, something of him with his uplifted humanity will shine forth from us. Six, if we would live Christ as the God-man, we must be found in Christ. We must know the power of his resurrection and be conformed to his death. It's only in this spirit can we be in Christ. Can we know the power of his resurrection and be conformed to his death? Seven, when we are found in Christ, living him as the God-man, he will be expressed in our human virtues through his empowering. So Philippians 4.13, very popular verse, I can do all things in him who empowers me. But do we see who is this one? He's the first God-man, and he's the spirit in us wanting to be the content of our inward parts so that we can do all things in this God-man. And with this God-man filling our inward parts, our human living, our human virtues with himself. So when you have a group of people who take this way, now you have a corporate reproduction of this God-man. And that is the church life. It's something corporate. So Roman numeral five, the ultimate issue of the reproduction of the God-man is the church as the reproduction of God, the corporate God-man, and the universal incorporation consummating in the new Jerusalem. 
So the first reference there is from Ephesians chapter 4. There we're told we should put on the new man. The new man is not just Christ. The church is the new man. The church as the body of Christ is also the new man. But this new man is just a duplication of Christ, the first God-man. So verse 24 says, and put on the new man, which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the reality. This is in contrast to Satan, who is this the deceit. But God is the reality. But this reality in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 4 is in Jesus. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him as the reality is in Jesus. So the new man that we put on according to God, according to the righteousness and holiness of the reality, is actually our putting on Jesus in verse 21, because the reality is in Jesus. That reality in Jesus is the actual living of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, and that's the living of a God-man. So we become a corporate reproduction of that first God-man, Jesus. So A, the church, the body of Christ, is the reproduction of of God. The God man through his death and resurrection has made a mass reproduction of himself. John 12:24 the Lord says I'm a grain of wheat as that first God man. But if I don't die, I'm just going to be alone as the only God man. But if I fall into the ground and die, and release this life that's within me so it can be imparted into you, then I will bring forth much fruit. The one grain will bring forth many grains that are identical to the first grain. So we believers, we are the many grains, the much fruit that the Lord brought forth in resurrection. And we are just a reproduction of him, the first grain of wheat, the first God-man. Yet we know the Lord also wants to take these many grains and grind them and blend them and form them together to be one loaf, one body. So the church as the body of Christ is composed of the many grains formed together to be a corporate God man. So two, this is from the hymn 203 that we sang. The church is God's expression. It's God's fullness. It's God's continuation in man, in humanity. It's God's life increase. It's God's spread. It's God's full growth. It's God's rich surplus. Okay, B, the one new man is the corporate God man. The first God man. The firstborn son of God is the head of this corporate God-man. And the many God-men, the many sons of God, are the body of this corporate God-man. So in Colossians 1.18, it 
Christ is the head of the body. Colossians 2.19, we the body through our holding of the head. It says, out from whom all the body grows with the growth of God. So Christ as the firstborn son of God, he's the head of this corporate God man. And we, we, the many sons of God, we are the body of this corporate God man. In Christ, God became man to produce a corporate God man for the manifestation of God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was manifested in the flesh. We know this at the beginning of that verse is referring to Christ, the first God man. But if you read through the rest of the verse, you realize that it's not only referring to Christ, the first God man, but to the church. And we are the church. The church is composed of us, the many sons of God, the many God men. Then in Colossians 3, 10 and 11, in verse 10, it says that we need to put on the new man and be renewed unto the full knowledge of the image of him who created him, the new man. Who created the new man? Christ created the new man. So we need to be renewed unto the full knowledge of the image of Christ. And of course, we know this renewing takes place by the Spirit. But in Colossians 1.15, it says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So we're being renewed unto the image of Christ, the one who created the new man. But this Christ is the image of the invisible God. This is why we can say the church is the body of Christ as the new man is a corporate God man. A corporate reproduction of God in man, in humanity. Okay, see, Christ's unlimited and infinite divine being with his divine life and glory was released through his death. The issue of this release was the producing of a universal incorporation of the consummated God and the regenerated believers. So in John 14, verses 10 and 11, the Lord spoke how the Father was in the Son, the Son was in the Father. This is an incorporation. But then in verse 20, in the day of resurrection, when the Lord came forth in resurrection as the Spirit, in that day, we know he is in the Father, but also that he is in us and we are in him. Now, D. The New Jerusalem as the consummation of the corporate God-man is the aggregate, the totality of the many God-men who are a reproduction of the first God-man, the man-savior revealed in the Gospel of Luke. So in Revelation 21, 2, John saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The husband is Christ, 
the first God-man. The new Jerusalem is a bride. It's not a physical city. It's a bride. It's the church consummated through the maturing in life, the growth in life, and the building up to be the bride, to match the bridegroom. Then in verse 7, it says that these ones who are the new Jerusalem, who are the bride, they are called the sons of God. So there in the new Jerusalem, we have Christ, the bridegroom, the first God-man, and we have the bride, the reproduction of the first God-man. And these ones, these ones are the sons of God, a reproduction of Christ, the firstborn son of God. Well, I need to bring this um, message to an end. And I want to just take a few more minutes to just share one example of how there would be a corporate reproduction of the first God-man and what that would look like in our Christian life and in the church life. So if we go back to Luke 6, 35, with verse 36, when the Lord said that you in your living shall be called the sons of the Most High. Then in verse 36, he gave a command as ones who have a living as the sons of the Most High, be full of compassion, even as your Father also is full of compassion. So in God, we have this divine attribute of compassion. So 2 Corinthians 1.3, the Father is the Father of compassions. In Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, Jehovah is compassionate. In James 5.11, it says, the Lord is very tenderhearted and compassionate. So we see compassion is a divine attribute of God. And then in Christ, the first God-man, we see this attribute of compassion being lived out through this man, through his human virtues. In Luke 1, 78, it says, because of the merciful compassions of our God, in which the rising sun will visit us from on high. In other words, this God-man, Jesus, was the visitation of God, God who is compassion. Then in Luke seven thirteen. We know that account where the Lord saw that widow and he was moved with compassion for her. They outwardly saw a man with this virtue, human virtue of compassion. But what was really happening there was the divine attribute of compassion within him was moving through his human virtue to express not just merely a man's compassion, but God's compassion on that widow. Then in that parable in Luke 10:33, the Lord liking himself to 
that Samaritan mentions he was moved with compassion when he saw that fallen, beaten situation of that man. The Lord is one moved with compassion. Then this is reproduced in the believers, in the many sons of God. It's reproduced in the church. So Paul in Romans 12.1, he says, I exhort you, brothers. But Paul was exhorting them through the compassions of God. The compassions of God by the Spirit have become Paul's inward content. And his exhorting was not according to himself, but according to this God of compassion. Then in Philippians 2.1, Paul is pleading to the believers in Philippi, if there is any, and he lists several things, but then he says, if there is any compassion. In other words, Paul was looking to see that this attribute of God, compassion, that is in the human virtues of Christ that would be worked into those believers in Philippi, that they would be full of compassion towards one another. Then Colossians 3, verses 10 and 12. In verse 10, it says, put on the new man. But then in verse 12, it describes what we put on when we put on the new man. And Paul says, put on inward parts of compassion. Put on Christ as your inward part of compassion towards one another and towards fallen man. So a God-man in his living and the church as a corporate God-man should be full of feeling for the fallen and needy human beings. Full of compassion towards one another and towards the sinners as a reproduction of Christ, the first God-man. Well, let me stop here, brothers and sisters. I would just encourage you, maybe just later on your own, read through this outline. What a help to show us this prototype and how this one, Christ, the first God-man, can be reproduced in us, in our Christian life, and in us corporately in the church life. Amen. Okay, I'll stop here.